I invite you to have a seat. If you have your copy of God's Word, I'm going to ask you to turn to the book of the Gospel of Mark. We're going to be picking up our study in chapter 7. Thankful for Pastor Tim, who was able to bring the Word last week. He did a fantastic job. And as a matter of fact, the text that I am responsible for, for exegeting and teaching on this morning is just a part B of what Pastor Tim spoke on last week. If you weren't here last week, uh, you can get the podcast. I would encourage you to do that. You can you, you get that wherever you get podcasts at. We're on there. Uh, you can also, I think, look it up on YouTube. Um, it really was a blessing, but today will be the second part of that. If you weren't here and you say, well, is this going to be, am I going to be missing out on everything? Well, you did miss out, but you're going to be able to just pick up today, and I think you'll be blessed even if you did miss last week. Let me just kind of back up a few chapters and help you to see how things are flowing along. It's a, it's a benefit for us that we see where the text is located in the greater context of this book. And so it wasn't that long ago that Jesus, this great teacher, gathering his disciples together, going around teaching and healing and even raising the dead, enters into his hometown of Nazareth. And it's there that he receives a big party, right? And he's welcomed home as some kind of a, a great leader, no, <laughs> that's not, maybe we've already determined it's not helpful this morning if I make jokes. No, Jesus was not accepted in his hometown. He was rejected. The prophet does not, does not have honor in his own town or his own country, as Jesus said. So he's rejected there. It was a, it was a disheartening truth that those who knew Jesus best or thought they did actually knew him least. And then we find out that Jesus, right after his rejection in Nazareth, he sends out his own apostles, his own disciples. He sends them out. I think there was a connection there. Hey, I was rejected. You will be too. Glad you got a little bit of that. Just see, saw a little bit of that to test your mettle. And, and so as you go out, this is what you're to do. You're to preach the gospel. You're to cast out demons. You're to, to heal the sick. And so they go out and do that. Right after they go out, John the Baptist is, is beheaded. We, we spent some time talking about that a few weeks ago. Jesus rejected. John persecuted to the point of his head being removed from his shoulders. Of course, this was in line with, with what John was wanting, that he would decrease in some way and that Jesus would increase in his effectiveness. And then we saw in the next week that Jesus, he feeds the 5,000. He walks on the water. He heals the sick there in Gennesaret there at the end of chapter six. He sees a similar ministry in Gennesaret that he has in, in, the, in the surrounding area of Galilee. And last week we saw this idea as Jesus teaches that he is rejecting and even condemning empty tradition. Tradition that has no value. Tradition that is not anchored in truth, nor is it anchored in true worship of the heart. And so really this week's passage is the, the next step or it's another application or outworking of what we saw there last week as Jesus rejects empty tradition. And so with that bit of a background, Jesus following up, let's look at verse 14 in Mark chapter seven. This is what the word of God says. And he called the people to him again after he just taught them about empty religion, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. 
And when he had entered the house and left the people, the large group there, his disciples, who of course go in with them, they asked him about the parable. And they said, and he said to them, then you are also without understanding. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from the outside cannot defile him since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and it's expelled. Thus he's declaring all foods clean. And he said to them, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All of these things, they come from within and they defile a person. This is a principle that we need to hear this morning. We need to understand this as the people of God. Even as those far from God, we need to recognize this truth so that we can draw near. And so with that in mind, let's ask God to bless the reading of his word. Let's let's go to him now. Father, again, we ask blessings on our time here this morning. We are your church and we need to be helped by your word. And so we ask that 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 be done by the power of the Spirit your, your church would be encouraged, corrected, and lifted up. We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and for his glory. Amen. So verse 14, what does it say? And he called the people to him again, and he said to them, hear me, all of you, and understand. And so Jesus has just addressed this large crowd. The Pharisees are there as well. They've been complaining, as you heard last week. Hey, these guys, your disciples, and those who hang out with you, Jesus, they don't even wash their hands. Remember, this isn't like, oh, they don't like COVID-19 wash their hands. It's not like, hey, they're not wearing a mask and stuff like that. It's ceremonially, they're not obeying the traditions of man, which said that they had to do this, this, and this. They're not doing that. So Jesus, after he offers correction there to the Pharisees, he then turns to the crowd and he begins to speak to them. And he says, hear me, all of you, and understand this. I love that Jesus says, hear me. Really, this command, it's, it is a command. He's commanding those who are listening to listen to him. Listen, hear what I'm about to say. That command echoes the Shema. The Shema is a command that God has given to his people. In the Old Testament, the Jews throughout from, from the time of Moses onward remembered the Shema and would speak it on a regular basis. Hear, O Israel. And Jesus, with the authority of the Shema, the authority of the Old Testament, the word of God, he speaks to them and he says, lovingly and with command and with authority, listen to me. Listen and understand. By the way, that that is a simple principle. It's a simple truth that we all need to grasp this morning. That listening precedes understanding. I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. It's a simple truth. But it's foundational to this passage and what Jesus is about to say. Some of you guys are smart. You're intelligent. You're thoughtful. You have ideas about this and you have ideas about that. But do you see what Jesus is saying? Listen to what I'm about to say and then understand. There's an order here. And so this morning we, we come to Christ. We come to his word and we sit down and we listen. And if then we listen, we have the opportunity to understand If you're coming to Christ this morning, you're coming even into this gathering, you're saying, I already have everything figured out. I know what I need to know about Christianity. I know what I need to know about this world. 
Jesus is lovingly but authoritatively saying to you, hear me, listen, and then, only then will you understand. Verse 15, this is what he says. There is nothing outside of a person that by going into him can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile. Remember the, 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 this, this idea of defiling or defilement from last week, Mark chapter seven, verse two. If you have your Bible, you can just look back a couple verses there, maybe a paragraph to this word in verse two, defile. The disciples of Jesus were being accused of eating with hands that had not been ceremonially unclean or cleansed, right? So I loved how Pastor Tim said this last week. It wasn't like you could just see like hunks of like dirt and like whatever hanging off their hands. Like they were just terribly filthy. Like, you know, if you have a teenage boy, like you see them come to the table often. That's not what was happening. We, we, We don't need to assume that the disciples just had terribly filthy hands, but their hands were ceremonially unclean. They hadn't been cleansed in the way according to the tradition of men. And because of that, they were defiled and anything that they touched would be really defiled itself. And so the food that they touched with their hands would be defiled and then they would be defiled as they would eat that food, right? So this idea of defilement simply means unwashed hands, at least ceremonially, right? And so if you're taking notes down, you might write this down. What does defile mean? Well, it equals unwashed hands in this context, but it means to make morally or ritually unclean, to make something morally or ritually, rit- ritually unclean. And Jesus is speaking to this idea because we don't want to be either morally or ritually, even though that's a bit of a foreign topic for us, we don't want to be ritually or morally unclean. And so we ask the question, what, what makes us unclean? What, what makes us defiled? Well, Jesus helps us here. That's what the passage is about. Jesus here makes a distinction between the two schools of thought on how one becomes defiled or how one becomes unclean. And that this morning is the main point. That's the main point this morning. So I'm not sure if it'll be on the screen for you, but this is the idea. I want you to write this down if you're, if you're taking notes. What comes out of your heart is more important than what goes into your stomach. What comes out of your heart is more important than what goes into your stomach. We're going to spend the rest of this time really working through, understanding, and applying this idea that Jesus is saying in verse 15, he repeats it in verse 20. What does it mean that not what comes in, but what comes out is what defiles? Look at verse 17. It says, and when he had entered the house, And left the people, his disciples asked him about the parable. And so Jesus was outside teaching there on this hillside, likely large groups gathered around him. He's teaching them. The Pharisees show up. They say, hey, you're eating with with folks that have unclean hands and they're defiled in and of themselves. And Jesus teaches to them. And then he turns to the crowd at the beginning of our passage today. He begins to teach them and he says, listen, what goes in is not what defiles, it's what comes out. And then they go into the group and you can just imagine the disciples are like, yeah, yeah. As they're on stage behind Jesus, you know, yeah, we, what he said, amen, amen. And then they get behind closed doors and they're like, hey, Jesus, what did you mean by that 
parable. What did you mean when you said that? He's alone there with his disciples and they get a chance to ask for some clarity. And by the way, I want you to see this, that this this piece of information that Jesus is offering to them, it kind of makes sense to us. As thoughtful Westerners, you know, living in the 21st century, like, yeah, that makes perfect sense, right? Yeah, of course, we, we get that. But if you're a first century Jew, this is, this is mind shattering to them. Are you kidding me? This undermines so much of what it was to be a first century Jew, at least one that was practicing and observing their own faith. So you just, again, picture the disciples. Jesus is there at the podium, right? He's, he's speaking, he's making this address to the people and he says, yeah, listen, I want you to know this. What comes out is what defiles. It's not what comes in. Again, the disciples gathered behind Jesus, hands like this. Yes, it's true, it's true. Shaking their head. Some of them a little more cautious than the other, you know, you know, a little more. But I imagine, you ever imagine Peter? He's, he's an easy target, right? We look at Peter and we're like, this guy, is, he's a bit wild. He's a, he's, a, he's a wild card. We don't know what he's gonna say. Imagine, imagine Peter hearing that. He's like, he can't hide it. Peter's a terrible poker player. He's like, man, I, I can't process what Jesus just said. His face begins to get red. He's like, I don't know, I don't know. What did he just say? We're gonna get killed. I don't know, this is bad news. He basically just said everything that the, the, the Jew, the, the, the Pharisees and, and the Pentateuch and all this stuff, it's all undermined. That's why he's shaking his head and he's saying, yeah. As soon as he gets in there with Jesus, he's shocked. Maybe we're just, I'm, I'm just grateful that the, the, the Bible doesn't say that like Peter's drinking a glass of water while Jesus says that, right? He just spits it out all over Jesus and the crowd, right? This was mind-boggling. It signaled a, a dynamic shift that needed to take place, not just in the disciples' minds, not just in the Pharisees' minds, but in all those gathered there around Jesus. They had to shift in their mind, hey, it's not what goes in, it's what comes out. So Jesus, with a straightforward statement, verse 15, Mark repeating it back for us, and thank God, under the inspiration of God, he's stressing how blind the disciples were to this statement. Jesus says, verse 18, then are you also without understanding? Jesus is not, a, he's not against giving the rhetorical backhand to his disciples, right? He's te- are you serious? You don't understand this principle either? What was all that head shaking on the, on the platform there just a moment ago, Peter, right? When Jesus asked this question, are you also without understanding there in verse 18, It's implying that the disciples should have understood by now, that they should have understood this principle. And Jesus, in a sense, rebukes them. And of course, there's grace there, but he's like, come on, guys. You're not staying with me. You're falling asleep. You need to to, to focus on what we're talking about here. Look at verse 18b. Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? He cannot make him unclean since it enters not his heart, but his stomach and it's expelled. Ends there by saying that, that verse ends by saying, thus he declared, Jesus declared all foods clean. We won't really spend a ton of time unpacking that this morning, this, this statement about thus he declared all foods clean. But I want you to see that Jesus is teaching us a principle here. 
And he uses it with, he makes that distinction here and, and teaches us this principle by talking about the difference between the heart and the stomach. The heart and the stomach. The Pharisees and the scribes, they, they were saying that people who eat with unwashed hands ritually defile the food that they touch. Then by eating that food, they're also defiling themselves. But Jesus is saying that the digestive system is a system that is sealed in a sense. It has an entry point. It has an exit point, right? And it, along the line of the digestive system is not found the heart, Right? These are two separate systems. Jesus is simply saying that what goes in your mouth is going to come out, right, some other, other, other way. We won't spend a ton of time talking about that either this morning. You can use your imagination or don't, right? But Jesus is saying, hey, the, the heart is not found inside of the digestive tract. And he makes a distinction between the heart and the stomach. What's the, uh, there's an assumed connection between the two. How can food you, you eat, how can that make you unclean? Jesus is saying one, one issue, one of these is a physical issue and the other is a spiritual issue. It's helpful that we are reminded of that as well. Even though we're not first century Jews who followed this tradition of men, or, it's helpful for us to be reminded of this truth as well. But do, do think of this, a first century Gentile coming to the faith, born outside of Judaism and wondering, okay, so I know about Judaism and now I hear about Christianity and I recognize that one has sprung in a sense out of the other, but what, and, and I really love what Jesus is teaching here. I love the fact that he's called me to repent of my sins and place my faith in him as the a one son of God, the lamb of God who would take away my sins. And I've done that, but now I'm confused. What do I need to do about all these other laws that the Jews follow? What do I need to do about that? As I enter into the kingdom of God, as I'm welcomed into that, by the grace of Jesus, what do I do with all these other rules? And Jesus helps us to see, particularly with those of eating and being ceremonial unclean, he says, hey, those two things are separate. The stomach is not the same as the heart. The spiritual is, in a sense, separate from the physical. There's a Greek word there, it's kulia. It means the entire digestive system. When Jesus says stomach, he's saying the koilia is separate from the heart. I'm not trying to show off that I can pronounce a, a Hebrew or a Greek word that I downloaded or, and copied into my manuscript. I'm not trying to show that off, but I, it's interesting because I'm gonna compare the word koilia with the word for heart, which is cardia. They even sound similar, but they are quite different. Anytime the, the New Testament uses, speaks of the stomach, it uses that Greek word and it just means the belly or the internal organs. It's not representative of something else. It, it means the physical part of your body that processes food, starting with your, your teeth, really, and all the way down to the other end, right? It's a sealed system with an entry point and an exit point. And the heart is not found along this line. It's not in the system, the, the koilia. But then you have the cardia, 
It's the causative source of a person's psychological life in its various aspects. There'll be a test. You'll have to write that down on the test. But it has special emphasis upon the thoughts. In other words, when the Bible, when the New Testament uses the word cardia or it's translated heart, this is what it's saying. It's not speaking of the organ in your chest that pumps blood. It's not speaking of the, 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 the little uh, shape that you draw on your Valentine cards. That's not the heart. When the Bible speaks of the heart, the cardia, it's saying the inner mind, the inner self. And when Jesus uses it here, he's referring to a person's thoughts and functions as the, the organ in the body that's active in the thought life, that's active even in personality and intellectual issues. And so when we say things like this, when I heard that, it broke my heart. Did it literally break your heart? No, it's an expression. And that, that sense, that use of the word heart in that case, it broke my heart or my heart is full is what Jesus is speaking of here. That part of you, your heart, the seat of emotions, the inner self, that is not connected with your digestive system. And so the cardia is not found along the lines of the coilia. And so it's not the paper heart. It's not the blood pumping heart. It's the seat of emotions. It's who you really are. I included just a few instances from the New Testament that speak and you speak to this issue or idea of heart. Matthew chapter 22, verse 37 says, you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart. Again, not your blood pumping heart, not your Valentine's Day heart, right? Symmetrical, red. No, with all of your being, with all of your personality, with all of your soul even. In 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 25, this is what the word of God says. The secret thoughts of his heart will be brought into the open, The context there we won't get into, but this idea we can see clearly from this verse alone that the secret thoughts of the heart, it's not your heart is not thinking thoughts on its own, not your your physical heart, but in your being, you have these thoughts. And of course the warning is that those thoughts in your heart, in your inside, in your mind, even a part of your soul, they will be brought into the open. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, each person should give what he has decided in his heart. So in the secret place of your being, that is your heart. Romans chapter 2, because of the stubbornness of your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of wrath. Again, we won't get into the context of that verse and what it's saying, but just understand and see. Because of the stubbornness of your unrepentant heart. Heart, your heart, is the organ or the seat of emotions that does the repenting, this verse teaches us. Last week, we heard what Jesus said. These people come near to me with their mouth and they honor me with their lips, but what? Their hearts are far from me. They talk a good talk. They follow the the traditions of men but their hearts are still far from God. And so it makes sense when you set aside the tradition of men that the things going into your digestive system cannot defile you. They cannot make you unclean before God, but instead what comes out of your heart, that's what 
defiles you. Some of you, the the crosshairs are beginning to, to cross on your very heart and you're thinking, oh, the attention is now brought to not the exterior, not the situations that I find myself in or even the things that are affecting me from the outside in, but God is actually judging my heart. He's not so concerned about what comes in. He's concerned about what comes out. If you're coming to that conclusion this morning, you are right. What comes out of your heart? What you produce, what you cause is far more important and far more telling than what externally affects you. You could think of it in terms of Jesus playing this game, would you rather? Would you rather eat something that was ceremonially unclean or would you rather have a cesspool of a heart deep inside? Which one is best? You could ask that to God. God, which would you rather? Would you rather me have crossed all my T's, dotted all the I's, and yet still in my heart be filled with hatred and self-love? The answer is clear. Jesus is speaking to this. If it's a choice between you saying something good with your mouth, but deep inside there being something evil, God would rather have the evil cleansed. This passage here is not to be taken as Jesus declaring now that everything is pure in the sense that, hey, go eat whatever you want. Go eat as many French fries as you can. Hey, sprinkle some bacon, maybe even some broken glass on top and you'll be good. That's not what he's saying here. He's not giving us a license to be foolish but he is being very emphatic and making this extremely clear to us. That what's in your heart is far more important than what is going into your mouth. Look at verse 20. It says, and he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Basically repeating what he has already made clear in verse 15. Instead of what comes in that defiles it's what comes out. It's, it's not too difficult, again, for us as Americans in the 21st century to understand because we didn't have this, this veil of tradition that surrounds us, maybe to some degree, but nothing like this. It's not, what, it's not what's on the outside that's important. It's not even those that things that are from the outside come inside. It's what's on the inside coming out. Verse 21, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. He goes on to say deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. Everything in that list is said to not be coming from the outside in. Like, oh my goodness, I can't believe I just just ate some theft. I just ate a little bit of adultery. No, God's saying, that's, that's ridiculous. Jesus is saying, hey, no, those things don't come in. They come out. He's saying your heart is a source of wickedness. 
What's damning before God? Dirty hands or theft? A savory piece of bacon or an adulterous affair? Which one is damning before God? Bacon comes from the outside in, but the adulterous affair and the lust that it was conceived in comes from the heart. It comes from a, a heart apart from God. Jesus is being extremely clear here. Dirty hands and bacon are external influences. But the internal conditions of your heart are what we need to pay attention to. This is something interesting here, what I'm about to say that you can't see in a, just by looking at an English translation of the Bible. But you've, if you knew Greek and you could read Greek, you'd be able to see what I'm about to tell you. The, there's a list there that looks like it's one list, but it's actually two. And it's separated by plural and singular actions here. The first list of nouns, the, the first seven things are plural forms, right? So evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, and wickedness are all repetitive actions that Jesus is saying they come out of you. These are the things that actually come out. Evil thoughts, you say, well, they don't actually come out. Yes, in a sense, they don't. But they do begin in the heart and they're processed in the mind, in a sense. Sexual immorality, again, is an activity that begins in the heart. But it's sexual immorality when it comes out, in a sense. Theft. This repetitive stealing, what you see on the outside, murder, what you see on the outside, adultery, coveting, wickedness, all of these things are repetitive plural actions that come from the, or that come from the inside and are demonstrated on the outside. But the following six nouns are in the singular. Deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness, that's the source. These are singular. They, and they come, what, what comes out of those? Well, that first part of the list, evil thoughts, sexual morality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness. These, these are what actually come out. And if you pay attention, that we could spend a lot of time just like even breaking down the order. One thing that's interesting to me is that of the list, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness, that Jesus lists foolishness as last place. Today, we would say, hey, that guy's a fool, right? You're just being a fool. Like we're trying to attack somebody or, or accurately say, hey, I don't like you, or you're, just, you're, being, you're an idiot. Or am I allowed to say that as a pastor? I'm not saying that about anybody in particular. But that's kind of what that, if we, and today if we were to say fool, that's what that kind of means. But in Old Testament literature, even in the New Testament, this influences up through the New Testament, it, it simply means it's a wrong and rebellious attitude towards God that pre prevents you from knowing how to behave properly. And so if somebody's a fool, it's because they, it's speaking of their attitude. They had this rebellious attitude towards the laws and commands of God. And therefore, because of that, they don't know how to behave properly. That's what it means to be a fool. And so the heart of all of those deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride is foolishness. It's not knowing how to behave properly, not submitting yourself and understanding that God's word is authoritative in your life. And wickedness really is a summary of the previous ones listed before it. Evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, and coveting. These are all wickedness. And so we really could sum up that list by saying this. Wickedness is what comes out because foolishness is what is inside. When you in your heart of hearts 
think that you don't have to submit to the word of God, when you're confused on that level, you act wickedly. When foolishness is in here, wickedness is what comes out. This is what Jesus is saying. And he's saying, hey, all of these evil things, they come from where? Within. That foolishness makes its way out in wickedness. And that is what defiles a person. And so here in verse 23, we have this summary statement. And it summarizes verses 20 to 22. It summarizes verse 15. And we know that in part because it simply just makes sense, but it also uses this word again, defile. And that is what was kind of began this whole conversation back in chapter seven, verses one and two. And then we again, we have come from within and defile and they echo the, the introduction of the list in 720, right? Where it says that what comes out of a person is what defiles him. And so 23 really is in a sense a, a summary statement. And these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So all evil things in that list, they originate where? They originate in the heart. They may or may not appear in word or in deed, but nevertheless, the heart is what is wicked. They come from the heart. They pollute man's intellectual abilities, his emotional is even willingness, all of these things are affected and controlled by this wicked heart that Jesus is warning about. And by the way, he, again, just to be clear, he's, he's pointing out that the uncleanness is not necessarily a moral thing that the Jews are concerned about. That's the ritual thing, but he is more concerned about the moral. And it's the evil things that come from our heart that make us unfit to worship God. And so whatever it is that we decide to do, to sing a song or to gather with the saints or to, to carry our Bible or to, to bring groceries to the neighbor who is a shut-in or to do whatever, whatever it is, those acts on the outside, they may be good and well, but that's not what cleanses you nor is it what defiles you. It's what's on the inside. It's the motivation for why you're doing what you're doing. And so ask yourself that question. Why do you do what you do? Whether or not on the outside it's considered clean or unclean, good or bad, why do you do what you do? There's a couple principles that we could really gather from this text, at least from its greater context. And I wanna just give you two as we kind of work on landing the plane. Here's two thoughts that I want you to think about. One is this. It's a summary of what we've been talking about this entire time. Your heart alone defiles. Your heart alone defiles. If you get nothing else, get that. That's what Jesus is saying. Your heart is what defiles you. There's a place for testing what comes into the body. There's definitely a place for that. Many of you have spent much of your life guarding what comes in your ear gate, what comes in your eye gate. And some of you, even what comes in your mouth. And that's great. There's a place for that. But at the end of the day, Jesus is saying, it is your heart that defiles you. There's a picture here of what's happening. Those in Jesus' day are saying, look out. 
You may become defiled. You may become defiled as if you're not now, but you might be later. And so be careful. Be on watch. Don't be exposed to these things. Don't be around these people. Shake, you remember, shake the dust off of your feet so that that doesn't come back into the Holy Land. We don't want to be defiled because it's something outside of us that's gonna defile us, the Jews are saying. But Jesus is saying something totally different. He pulls the rug out from underneath him and he says, no, your heart is already defiled. He's exposing the fact that each and every one of them, us included, are terribly sinful and in need of being cleansed and remade. From the oldest to the youngest, that is the case of humanity. And there is a danger without. There is a danger without, but there is a greater danger within. And to focus on one to the neglect of the other is foolishness. It's foolishness. At the heart of this issue This problem that we have so often by focusing on the exterior and not the interior is really born out of a humanistic worldview that clashes on every level with a biblical one. And it says this, your heart is not sinful. You are being corrupted in some relative sense by your surroundings. That's a lie. It's a lie. You are not being corrupted by your surroundings. You are corrupted in your natural state. Adam's sin, in effect, as our father, it affects us both, follow me, physically and legally. Adam's sin, there in the garden, it affects us both physically and legally. Follow me here. Physically, because we were in Adam. This is an Augustinian idea. In Adam, at that original moment of original sin, we were in Adam and therefore his sin physically affects us. So we have guilt because of that, but also legally, which by the way, the word guilt is a legal term. We have legal guilt because Adam was our representative. He was our covenant head. So we are not just corrupted. We're not just guilty because we were in Adam, but also because he represented covenantally all humanity. And I know this is a bit deep, but this is important for you to grasp. It combats and confronts this, le- or this humanistic idea that man is good until he's affected in some opposite way, in some, some terrible way, which, by the way, where does that even come from? It's all relative, right, in that worldview. But Adam has led us, each and every one, to become polluted and guilty and so now the Bible can clearly teach that there is none righteous, no, not one, which is repeated time and again. And we see this clearly even as early as Genesis chapter six, the Lord, right before the flood, he saw the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. That every intention of the thoughts of the heart was only evil continued. This was of all mankind. And so what do we do with that? What do we do when we see that we've spent so little time looking inside and spent so much time on the outside? What do you do when you see your sinful heart for what it really, really is? That it's already defiled. And it's demonstrating that in your life. What do you say? What do you do? Well, this is what you say. Okay, Jesus, you're right. I see my sin. I see that my heart is wicked, but now what? Well, if you look at last week's text, if you look at this week's text, there's not a whole lot of help for us, right? It's like, hey, 
you're sinful. You're sinful. But what do we do with this? Well, if we were just to stop it right here and say, hey, this is terrible news. I didn't get up early just to come into the, to the church and gather and see somebody get baptized and just to feel bad about myself. Well, listen, the gospel literally means good news. So good news, I've got good news for you, right? This is the good news. If you repent of your sin and believe the gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, then you can be saved. You can be saved. You can be remade, and you can have that heart that is wicked, that is defiled, cleansed, and not just cleansed on the outside, like the Pharisees were so convinced about. Imagine going to somebody's home and they offer you a cup of coffee, a cup of tea, and as you pull that cup to yourself, you look and you see just the stains, maybe even some like some uh, you know some some stuff left on the outside from the last time somebody drank. Or you're thinking, wow, the outside was cleaned. It looks, it's a beautiful mug, but the inside is, is terrible. Jesus is saying, hey, be concerned with the inside. And Jesus will not just cleanse the outside. He starts with the inside. This is the good news. And so let's take it in context. What is the message of Jesus? Mark chapter one, verse 14. The first thing that Jesus has recorded as saying, check this out. Jesus came into Galilee. What did he do? Proclaiming the gospel of God and saying that time is fulfilled. It's here. The kingdom of God is at hand. What are you to do? Repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the gospel. And so what is the gospel? It's the good news that one and only God who is holy, made us in his image to know him. I love this. A pastor wrote this. But we sinned and cut ourselves off from him. In his great love, God became a man in Jesus, lived a perfect life and died on the cross, thus fulfilling the law himself and taking on himself the punishment for the sins of all those who would ever turn and trust in him. He arose again from the dead, showing that God accepted Christ's sacrifice and that God's wrath against us had been exhausted. And he now calls us to repent of our sins and to trust in Christ alone for forgiveness. And if we repent of our sins and trust in Christ, we are born again into a new eternal life with God. And so your heart alone defiles and it is defiled. But what's the good news? The good news is this, write this down. Second point that I want you to take away that his blood alone cleanses, that his Blood alone cleanses. Church, Jesus is the mediator of this new covenant. And so that's the good news that Ezekiel told us about long ago. What did he say? What did Ezekiel say? Speaking of the covenant that God would make with man, that Jeremiah, with his people, that Jeremiah spoke of in chapter 31, this is what Ezekiel says. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleansed from all your, unright, all your uncleanness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I, listen, I, God, will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, that foolish, stubborn heart, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. So Adam was our representative in that first covenant. But Jesus is the mediator. He is the representative of the new covenant. Adam led us into sin and Jesus can lead us out. He's the mediator of the new covenant that Ezekiel tells us about that gives us a new heart. And so you say this morning, what am I to do? I see my sin. I see my heart. I see that it's defiled. What do I do? Come to Jesus. 
Come to Jesus. He's the one that issues clean hearts and new spirits. And so when somebody comes to Jesus, what are they doing? Well, they're turning from their sin and they're trusting in Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection as a payment for their sin. And they indeed are forgiven and they're washed from their sin and given a new heart. And so what is the good news for you? It doesn't matter who you are. If you come this morning and turn from your sins and place your faith in Jesus, you too have a new heart. And as an outward demonstration of what happens when, when you turn from your sin and place your faith in Jesus, you're baptized. You're baptized. We're gonna have a baptism this morning here in just a moment. Water baptism is intended for the individual who has received the saving benefits of Christ's command. And as a testimony to God, the church and to even yourself and to the world, you're baptized. And so it's a symbol of something that's truly happening on the inside and it's demonstrating that on the outside. And so Hagerstown Church's statement of faith describes baptism like this. It's a visual and symbolic demonstration of a person's union with Christ in the likeness of his death, burial, and resurrection. And that they're raised to walk quite literally in newness of life. It signifies that a person's former way of life has been put to death and and it depicts a release from sin. As they go into the water, they die. And as they rise again, they they leave their sin behind and they rise to walk in a new life with a new heart. And so baptism doesn't save, but it demonstrates, it pictures salvation that has already occurred. So we remember God's goodness. We remember his grace, especially as revealed in the person and work of Jesus Christ when we see, when we observe baptism, when we participate in baptism. It pictures Christ's death and resurrection and by participation, our death and resurrection with him as, a, as we're unified with him in faith. And so as we enter into the waters or as we watch another do that, we are reminded that Christ was crucified and that he was raised from the dead and that we too have died to the old self in order to live for Christ. And so as a summary, let me offer you this. When you, when you see baptism, when you observe it, when you participate in it, what are, what are we actually seeing here? Well, we're seeing a symbol of Christ's death, his burial, and his resurrection. Somebody has died, Christ has died, he was buried, and he was raised again. And so we see that, it's signifying that, but it's also signifying the disciple or the Christian's union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. So why is Christ not being baptized this morning? Because we are being baptized and it's a picture of our union with him. Just as he was died, just as he was buried, and just as he was resurrected, so does the disciple. It also, number three, It signifies the new life that the Christian or the disciple walks in. It's a picture of the old being left behind in a new way of life. That new heart acting and willing according to God's laws. And number four, it is a picture of the cleansing and washing away of sin. And so this morning we have the privilege to baptize Hannah McIntyre. Hannah has turned from her sin 
and she has trusted Jesus for forgiveness. And she has come to Hagerstown Church wishing to join our church and be counted as a member. And we want to do that. We recognize that she has turned from her sins, placed her faith in Jesus, and that she is walking in obedience to the Lord's commands. And so we would love to welcome Hannah into membership. And we do that by saying first, she must be baptized. And when she is baptized, she is then counted. She is welcomed into the membership of Hagerstown Church. And so with that... I'm going to step down to the baptismal tank here. (laughs) If you're a member of Hagerstown Church, you were with us a few uh, days ago when we had a members meeting And at that members meeting, we presented as pastors, Hannah McIntyre to the congregants. And we said, hey, we think that she's a Christian. We think that she's walking in obedience to the Lord's commands and we want to welcome her into the church. And the church said, hey, we believe also that she is a Christian. Here's one of the things that uh, Pastor Tim relayed to the church. And I love this. He said, said, he quoted her by saying this. Hannah said, I know I'm a Christian because I want what God wants. Man. Does that not get to the heart of what we saw in our text this morning? That though our hearts are defiled, separated from God, that we know we're in Christ. We know that we've been given a new heart when our heart doesn't want the old thing anymore, but it wants something new. And so we see that happening in Hannah's life. And so because of that, we want to come and and baptize her this morning. And so Pastor Tim has a few questions for Hannah and then we'll baptize her. Well, Hannah, uh, upon your profession of faith, I baptize you, my sister, in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, buried in the likeness of Jesus' death, raised to walk in newness of life. (laughs) Thank you. What a beautiful picture that we've been able to see this morning a visual representation and and demonstration of what God has been doing in the lives of so many of his children giving them a new heart taking their heart of stone and giving them a heart of flesh and so it's beautiful this morning in Hagerstown Church as we welcome Hannah McIntyre into our membership upon her baptism what a beautiful thing that God is doing yes absolutely let's do another uh, round of applause Church, God is doing something and it's a, it's a joy to be a part of that. Well, let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with gratitude overflowing from our hearts as we visualize, as we see the symbol of what you're doing in the life of Hannah and the life of your church this morning. We praise you for that. We praise you for the fact that we have seen this morning a representation of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And how he's called the disciple of Christ, Hannah. And so many of us gathered here this morning to walk in his footsteps following in baptism. But Father, we're also thankful for the truths that this symbol represents. Not that we've just got to enjoy this this morning. We're so thankful of the truths that we 
have seen, picture this morning, that we can be unified, united with Christ, even unto his death, because that death and burial leads to a resurrection. And so with that hope in our hearts, we sing to you this morning and we make much of you, Jesus. We praise you and we pray in the name and according to the will of Jesus Christ. Amen.